The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, um, one of the... In the early morning I talked about the ordinary aspect of the human, of the, of the Buddha, the ordinary human aspects of his life. And one of the most, most ordinary aspects of his life is that he died. You know, the, um, if the Buddha really existed, which the assumption is, and if you want to know something about his life, we don't know much about his life, but we certainly know that he was born, <laughs> he grew up, and at some point he died. So, um, and the death of a religious leader, founder of a religion, is sometimes taken as being very significant. And certainly some religion has all kinds of symbolic value. So, you know, Jesus on the cross, I mean, the amount of symbolism attributed to his death and resurrection and what it means to be crucified on the cross and how the vertical and horizontal dimensions of life meet in the middle by his heart and there's all kinds of things people build on that. And, you know, and his suffering, the end of his life and the powerful, powerful symbolism of Christ's suffering and looking up in the heavens, I guess, and say, you know, why have you forsaken me? And all the, you know, it's, it's been very rich theologically for Christians to struggle with this and question it and build theologies on this. And so Buddhists also have the founder of religion who died. And it has its own symbolism, its own representation that it has, its own teaching, and its own things that can be done with it. And one of the, and so there's some characteristics of the Buddha dying. One is that he died as old. Another is, but one is that, uh, um, so he died as part of natural part of life, as opposed to being killed. So it's kind of it's the nature of life to de- to die. So he died in the natural death. Another is that he died at peace, peacefully. He wasn't afra- afraid of it. He wasn't reluctant about it. He faced it directly. There was a certain amount of choice involved in it, and um, and he uh, died peacefully. Not only did he die peacefully, but he died with a lot of uh, control, self-control, enough self-control over his mind that he could uh, one last time do a tour, pass through. Uh, the jhanas, the deep absorptions. And um, he died outside, uh, connected to nature, underneath trees. It's, and actually, all the significant events in the Buddha's life occurred under trees. He was uh, born under a tree, he attained enlightenment under a tree, he died under a tree, and, uh, and probably he taught this first teaching under a tree as well. And um, so some people, you know, like the fact that it's in nature and, and it's kind of connected to the natural world. Um, so, you know, there, there's a kind of, you know, there's a kind of a theologically rich possibilities in building on how he died or the symbolism or the archetype of that. And the question is not to believe or not believe in that, but to what degree does that image or that uh, almost archetype of a person being that way how does it support and help us in our life? Does, is it motivating? Does it, 
Is it create a certain kind of faith that's useful to have confidence? Does it show a possibility uh, that, oh yeah, that can be done? Does it show a direction that we can go? Um, I don't have to stay afraid of dying. It's, someone has modeled what it's like um, not to be afraid of death. This great world religious person who I have a lot of respect for, he could look death directly in the face and not be afraid. What would it take for me to do that? It's okay to do that. So here we have this man who gives his very last teachings. All conditioned things are of the nature to decay. Strive on untiringly. Then the Lord entered the first jhana, and leaving that, he entered the second, the third, and the fourth jhana. Then leaving the fourth jhana, he entered the sphere of infinite space, then the sphere of infinite consciousness, then the sphere of no-thingness, then the sphere of non, neither perception nor non-perception. And leaving that, he attained the cessation of feeling and perception. Then the Venerable Ananda said to the Venerable Anuruddha, Venerable Anuruddha, the Lord has passed away. No, friend Ananda, the Lord has not passed away. He has attained the cessation of feeling and perception. Ananda didn't have as deep practice as Anuruddha. Naroda was fully awakened, enlightened person, Arhat. Ananda was not. So Ananda couldn't track the Buddha as the Buddha went through these stages of meditation. But somehow Anuruddha, knowing these really well, could somehow track or tune in or feel or sense or that what the Buddha was doing. Um, and then the Lord, leaving the attainment of the cessation of feeling and perception, entered the sphere of neither perception or non-perception, from that he entered the sphere of nothingness. He's going back down through these, these jhanas. Then the sphere of infinite consciousness, the sphere of infinite space. From the sphere of infinite space, he entered the fourth jhana. From there, the third, the second, and the first jhana. Leaving the first jhana, he entered the second, the third, and the fourth jhana. After leaving the fourth jhana, uh, the Lord finally passed away. So he kind of goes up, down, and he starts going up again. And he comes to the fourth jhana, there's something about the deep equanimity and peace and the presence of mind that can be there in the fourth jhana. It's a very powerful place to let go. And so there he let go. He let go of his life. And, um, and so there's some choice there involved or some involvement in it that he actually not only did he choose, like kind of when to die, but he chose what state of mind to die in. When you, to die in. It's remarkable to, to have some choice around that. And um, and um, at that, and at the uh, Lord, blessed Lord's final passing, there was a great earthquake, terrible and hair rising, accompanied by thunder. And the Brahma Sahab, the Brahma uh, Sampati, one of the gods in the heavenly realms, uttered the verse: "All beings in the world, all bodies must break up, even the teacher, peerless in the human world." The mighty Lord and perfect Buddhas passed away. And Shaka, the ruler of the gods, uttered this verse, Impermanent are compounded things, prone to rise and fall. Having risen, they're destroyed. They're passing through his bliss. This is the chant we do. Anichavata sankara upadava yodamino upakitua neruchanti tesang vupasamo suko. And the venerable Anuruddha uttered this verse, no breathing in and out, just a steadfast heart. The sage who's freed from lust has passed away to peace. With mind unshaken, he endured all pains. By Nibbana, 
the illumined mind is freed. It might be nice uh, if you if you're, can follow along to see um, Gethin's, Rupert Gethin's translation of that piece. It's, it's, uh, it reads a little bit easier if I can find it quickly. Here. So Anuruddha said, there was no in-breath and no out-breath when such a man's mind was steady. So he's still alive, he's steadied, his deep concentration, and breathing has stopped. It happens in deep meditation. Then undisturbed, set on peace, the sage died. So he's undisturbed, he's in deep state of equanimity, peace. He's peaceful, set on peace. There, from there he died. He endured pain, undi- he endured pain undismayed in heart. The freeing of his mind was like the blowing out of a lamp. So he had the less pain in his old age. And, um, and, uh, but he endured it. And here it says, undismayed in heart. His heart, his mind was undismayed, undespairing, um, was you know, not troubled by this, untroubled by it. And then the final freeing of his mind was like the blowing out of a lamp. And then he died. Or he, they, the Buddhist tradition doesn't like to use the word die. The Buddhas don't die. Enlightened people don't die. They, they usually, there's a word, they get nirvanized. <laughs> and it's, very, it's most, uh, the, the, um, it doesn't work so well in English. So we don't usually translate the Pali accurately. And we say, you know, attain nirvana, as if nirvana is a noun. But uh, more often than not, in the suttas, the word is um, nirvanized. The person was nirvanized. And if we translate nirvana as release, then we can translate the person was released. So they don't want to say the person's died, they say the person's been released. But what is that? You know, it's not quite, you know, is it person, and then, and then, and then they want to say, if you ask the question, you know, the Buddha then no longer exists now that he was reali- released? And that's an inner point. You can't ask that question. There's no answer to that, there's no answer to that question. Yeah, so does, it, does he exist after he's uh, de- uh, you know, realized, uh, released? That's an inappropriate question. You can't answer that question that way. So what, what does it leave you? you know, what is a status? And, um, and uh, some um, people say that the it, it, uh, best way to understand this is um, kind of an ancient Indian kind of physics that... Um, uh, in the universe, there's this heat element, and sometimes that heat element gets condensed into a flame. When the flame goes out, the heat that's in that flame, the, you know, conservation of thermal energy or something, uh, the heat doesn't disappear; it just gets dispersed into the universe. And so, the, when the when the consciousness dies, it's not, it does, you can't really say that. You know, when a, when a flame gets extinguished, like it refers to here. You know, our idea is that it's, it's, it's over and done with. But the ancient people, it's like the flame is, is gone, but the heat element is still there. But how is it there? You can't really point to where, in the, where it is. So there's something mysterious there. But, and whether that's relevant to anything, I don't know. <laughs> it's just, you know, from practical purposes, it's dead. 
<laughs> Does it help him that he's that way? <laughs> I don't know what it means at all, but yes. Just a comment about it, you know, how much emphasis there is placed on the breath in the practice. and then uh, no, Emphasis on what? Uh, emphasis on the breath that's yeah. placed uh, um, in the practice. And then, you know, if you've ever seen someone die, really it becomes very apparent that that's what death is, is this final breath that's taken. But then there's this idea that, in this case, there's a, a, a flame that's extinguished. It's not the observation of the final breath. It's the. Right. It's just a, a very unusual way to witness. To well, that's what. Well, not so unusual, but, but, uh, but. Um, I mean, this is an, this was an Ananda's mistake, perhaps. Ananda maybe didn't see any more breath, and assumed the Buddha was dead. But Anuruddha know, knew that uh, in, that in deep meditation, the breathing stops. And so the lack of breath is not uh, uh, proof in and of itself that the person has died, especially for a meditator. And so, um, but even so, you know, the, the, the end of, uh, 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 people sometimes who are involved in hospice will point out that the fact that someone stopped breathing, we don't know what other functioning still is going on. And you know, like, you know, what, what mental consciousness functioning might still be going on. And generally in Buddhism, there's the assumption that there's still processing going on after the final breath. And so there's a kind of care given to not disturbing the, that process and keeping things quiet and calm. And, and uh, one of the reasons in Buddhism why uh, you're discouraged from grieving in the presence of someone who just died is to not somehow mess with their process. And, you know, it's okay to grieve in a way, but then you could do it away so that they don't, you know, get distressed and they go through their last post-breath process. But, you know, exactly where death occurs, you know, it's, um, I don't know, it's kind of hard to decide. I, and, you know, I've been around people and who died and, you know, my way is you get a, you, you get a feeling, there's a sense, that, oh, something's shifted now. I think it's not here anymore or not, something, you know, something's changed now. But when that is, No? We have the hospice expert here. Tell us, please. Correct me. <laughs> when, when is that moment of death? Ha- <laughs> oh, you're concurring. <laughs> you don't really know. <laughs> Sorry to single you out. <laughs> but you have to work on your head movements. <laughs> so, um, so, um, so, you know, so we have this human Buddha who died. We have the non-human Buddha who, uh, you know, this divine Buddha for whom is kind of godlike and should have tremendous powers and abilities. And sometimes in later Buddhism, the Buddha, the human Buddha was, this is in Mahayana Buddhism, the Lotus Sutra, the human Buddha was seen, it's actually not just, it really not, didn't really, really exist. The human Buddha was a, it was a projection, a nimitta, projection of the cosmic Buddha who really exists. And the cosmic Buddha uh, has been eternal and lives on a throne high above in this big stupa in the sky. <laughs> and, uh, and in order to help people who are kind of deluded and need extra help, and, uh, he created this kind of projection of a, of a human Buddha because that we can relate to. And it's kind of like bait, 
to get, trick them into the Dharma, and then later he'll tell them the real teaching. But only once they've kind of gotten along for a while. And, um, and the Lotus Sutra was going to be the final revelation that once you kind of, kind of got along here. And um, so, so in some schools of Buddhism, then, it's this, this deified Buddha kind of arose. You know, it came, it came a little bit of a problem the Buddha died. You know, how does that happen? So one solution is say, well, he didn't really die. He, never really, he was just a projection. So you don't, have to, you don't have to take that too seriously. But for people who don't quite go that far, you know, he died, but, you know, he died before his hundred years. How does that happen? And, uh, you know, if he's really such a great, powerful, spiritual person, he's, you know, pinnacle of human, and pinnacle of even higher than the gods, he should have enough power and ability to live out his full lifespan of up to a hundred years at least. So what happened there? So th- I think the Buddhists grappled with this, and you see down through the centuries there's a lot of grappling with some of the human qualities of the Buddha, aspects of the Buddha. Like even the fact that he, uh, um, that a boulder rolled down a hill and struck him with a splinter and he bled in his foot a little bit, that was a big problem for Buddhists. Because, you know, your God doesn't supposed to bleed. And so they had to explain that. Or they had a bad back, you know, well, you know, so they explained, how do you explain that away from your God? And so this was a problem as soon as you kind of try to make him more than ordinary human. And so I believe it's part of one, of the, one of the dimensions or layers of this text is people are trying also to explain this in the text. And, uh, and this, is, this is why Mara appears. And for those of you who haven't read it, um, it's explained in the text that, um, that Mara comes to the Buddha near the end of his life and the Mara says to him, Mara is kind of the devil or kind of the, the god of death and destruction. And the god, Mara's job description is to stop people from getting enlightened. So the Buddha is like really bad news for, the, for Mara. So Mara is really eager for the Buddha to get on with it, you know, get out of the way. <laughs> so uh, Mara comes to the Buddha and says, you know, we made an agreement a long time ago uh, that once uh, um, the four assemblies, once uh, the, uh, the monks, the nuns, the lay followers, lay, lay, uh, women followers and men followers, once they were well established in the Dharma, once they were realized, and once they were established in teaching the Dharma, they could teach it. Uh, after that, you could depart. You can die. But until then, you, you, know, you know, it's okay to get them established, but when you're not, no longer needed at, at some point. So, so the Buddha says, basically says, okay, I agree. I'm no longer needed. So that teaches something, is that the Buddha chooses his time, and he doesn't die until he's no longer needed. And that makes it a little bit more palpable that your great person is going to die. But he doesn't just say, uh, but then he passes the blame a little bit onto poor Ananda. And um, he, 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 a whole bunch of times it's referred to here, like, I don't know, 18 times or something, they're visiting some beautiful shrines and beautiful trees area hanging out. And the Buddha says something which is meant to be a broad hint. And the broad hint is, Oh, for someone who's developed the four roads to power, these four strong capacities of mind, anybody who's developed these strong capacities of mind, they can, if they, they can extend their life to live out the full span of life, the hundred years. That's all he says. And then it says, great, okay. And doesn't get the hint. And the hint is, it's obvious when you hear it, right? I'm sure. The obvious uh, hint is that 
that Ananda should have understood that he was supposed to request of the Buddha to please live out your life, the whole lifespan. Buddha said, anybody who, can, anybody who has that can do it. So Ananda was supposed to be responsible for saying, please do it. And then he gets told that's your fault, you didn't answer. And he, you got lots of opportunities. 18 times I brought this up. And you didn't get it, you're such a dunce. Poor Ananda, I mean, he's responsible for, you know, I mean, the Buddha, you know, can the Buddha take more responsibility or can he just be more direct? <laughs> and I think it's all part of this playing out of this, this, you know, who's responsible for the Buddha dying and him not wanting, there's something about not taking responsibility yourself, but rather kind of, you're kind of playing out this, this theater in a sense with other, with the gods, with Mara, with Ananda, and all these different things. And that's, you know, that's partly why he died, you know, because if he wanted to, of course, he could have continued. So it's a little bit odd, but it does explain something. And the tradition, enough people back then needed some kind of explanation like that. It's not unsimilar to the story when the Buddha was enlightened and he was disinclined to teach. But then the god Brahma came along and asked him to please teach. And then the Buddha agreed. And so there was a need to have this deity kind of person show up to encourage the Buddha to teach. Now why is that? One theory is that it's unbecoming for someone who's spiritually mature on their own initiative to teach. And so to have the great god come says two things at least, two things. One is that he's not doing it on his own initiative, he's being asked to do it, and so he's, repl- he's, he's accommodating a request because he has no desires. And uh, it's, it's another validation that the, the greatest God of all, hum- all the universe is the one who's asking the Buddha to teach. It's a kind of, again, creating a, a, a status, the Buddha status, and then higher than that great God. So why do the tradition need to insert this, these gods and these maras in? And I don't have the, you know, a cl- uh, definitive answer, but this, I, I believe it had to do with this trying to figure out, trying to explain why the Buddha was an ordinary human being. When the tendency for many people is to want to deify their religious founders. Make some, some sense? Some sense. I don't expect to make a lot of sense, but the, <laughs> at least you understand the words. <laughs> um, the... Um, so the Buddha predicts his own death, which we saw. Um, and then people were grieving and everything afterwards. And then the last thing I want to read, and maybe that'll be the end, is, um, so, the Buddha has died. And those monks who had not yet overcome their passions wept and tore their hair, raising their arms, throwing themselves down and twisting and turning, crying, all too soon the blessed has passed away, all too soon the welfarer has passed away, all too soon the eye of the world has disappeared. But those monks who were free from craving endured mindfully and clearly aware, saying, all compounded things are impermanent. What is the use of this? Then the venerable Anuruddha said, friends, enough of your weeping and wailing. Has not the Lord already told you that all things that are pleasant and delightful are changeable, subject to separation, and to become other? So why all this, friends? Whatever is born, become, compounded, subject to decay. It cannot be 
that it does not decay. The Deva's friends are grumbling. I guess they're annoyed with the monks for being upset. Um, there's kind of very sharp contrasts. Like, you, can you expect someone who's grieving just, oh, you know, realize everything's impermanent and get over it? It's a bit kind of black and white to me um, to talk this way, but maybe in this literature and trying to make a point. Venerable Anuruddha, what kind of devas are you aware of? Friend Ananda, there are sky devas, there are earth devas. And he just talks about these different devas. And this is the part I wanted to end with. So Ananda, so the Buddha just died. Some monks have cried, some are endured. They had this little conversation about the gods. It's the middle of the night. The Buddha died late in the night, early in the morning, I guess, sometime the night. And this is what Ananda and Anuruddha, the two senior disciples of the Buddha, this is how they spent the evening, that night after the Buddha died. Then Venerable Anuruddha and the Venerable Ananda spent the rest of the night in conversation on Dhamma. They spent the evening night talking about the Dharma. Now, isn't that a fitting end? It's not the end of the sutra, but isn't that uh, touching that here they're the great teacher and the person they spent many years with and that the way of honoring him, the way of marking this transition is to spend the time talking Dharma as opposed to maybe practicing it, but talking is practicing it. So... I hope that you have lots of opportunities to talk to Dharma. I hope that um, there's a chance to explore and negotiate uh, the sutras, death, your own death, your relationship to death and dying. I hope that uh, this Buddhist path and practice has a very direct support and aid to really face these important issues directly and honestly and and work through it so that when your time to die, if you're lucky enough to die, die slowly, that you can do it with the kind of equi- equanimity and peace that will allow you to let go in a deep way when the time comes and not hold on. And kind of, so that your heat can spread out and touch us all. So that's, um, so for those of you who have never read this before, now you can read it. And, um, and it's a little bit hard to read cold, but now maybe with this kind of introduction, all these little segments and pieces and themes, and you'll go through it and it'll be much more interesting for you. And, um, and, uh, and it's the kind of thing that'll come more alive and you, as you engage with it. And if you think of it as literature, that maybe that, uh, you know, that it has all the potential of Shakespeare or Odyssey or something. So is that good? Is that enough for today? So a couple of things. So um, do you want to say something? I just wanted to ask you about Hara Nibbana Day. It's celebrated at different times. Yes. So, so different traditions have different dates. The, if you follow the chronology in here, uh, it seems like the latest he could have died is in uh, January. Uh, in the Zen tradition, they, they celebrate in February 8th, I think it is. Um, because uh, he declares he's going to die in three months while he's on the rains retreat. And the rains retreat ended in October. So, so if, you take, 
if you take from October, end of October to three months, it gets into January, February. And, um, and so, um, and, and that's, you know, the Mahayana tradition has more of that kind of date. Why the Theravada tradition celebrates in May with the Visak, uh, lumping all the different events together, I don't know how that came to be. And, um, but it doesn't, you know, it, 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 this chronology as it seems to appear, appear here doesn't seem to support that. And I don't know how it's explained. I don't think he minds so much. I don't think he cares so much, you know. <laughs> so a couple of things before we end. Um, it's really helpful that uh, there's some people who can help tidy up the place after a day. Uh, this is a Sati Center event. So, uh, IMC is letting Sati Center use it for its classes. It's a little bit confusing that I'm teaching in both. It's like you know, it's all, nothing's changed, right? Gil's sitting up here <laughs> talking away. But actually, this is a Sati Center event, and so we want to return it to a good place. So Lori is the manager, and if we have maybe seven people who stay behind to tidy up just the bathrooms and kitchen and stuff. Can we have seven people? So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay, so talk to Lori, and she'll kind of delegate. And then, um, and then also, I think it's worth saying that in terms of the... Uh, because it's a Sati Center event, uh, the whatever dana is offered for the event is, uh, is handled differently than IMC dana. It's a whole different uh, kind of, it's a whole different organization, really. It's a not so known separate group. And so um, that's why there's only, the, the IMC dana slot is covered. There's only one dana slot just for Sati Center. And so that all goes together, and then Sati Center will, um, has a kind of formula they use to, uh, where they divide, you give some of, the, some of that dana to the teacher, in this case it would be me, and some of it for Sati Center's overhead, including offering some rent for using of the building for this. So, um, so that's just a little different, so you know, some people get confused and think it's all the same. So, um, thank you very much for the day and for your interest. I'm kind of surprised that you stayed. <laughs> I didn't think, I don't think I could manage that. <laughs> So, thank you all.